In the classic tale by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the children, Edmund, surrenders to the temptation of the White Witch and is soon found to be under her spell. The results are catastrophic when you think about it. Although Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus Christ, is victorious in the end, everyone needs to endure, everyone must endure suffering in the meantime. It's, it's like the, the sin of one affects the lives of the many. Everyone, the four children, Aslan, all of Narnia, because of Edmund's sin, must suffer. And that's why the biblical principle, principle runs throughout the pages of Scripture from Old to New Testament, that we don't live unto ourselves. We don't sin unto ourselves. The sin of one becomes the sorrow of many. And that's exactly what happened in our story, has happened in our story in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan is uncovered. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to the book of Joshua and simply remind you that this dramatic story in Joshua started with the falling of Jericho and the warning not to take any of the plunder. The spoil belongs to God. The phrase that is used is the devoted things belong to God. Some will be devoted to his treasury, some will be devoted to the fire, but they belong to God. It's as though Israel in their first battle is to take the spoil and give it to God like the first fruits. You and I are to give the first fruits of our income to God. The first son in Israel belong to God. And so the first fruits of this first battle, the plunder, is devoted to him. Don't take it, was the command. Jericho fell. And then we come to chapter 7, and Israel is defeated. They go out to fight against the small little town of Ai. They were soundly defeated. The headline in the Hebrew Herald the next day read, Unthinkable. We're number one. And we just got beat by a number 20 or something. How embarrassing. It should never have happened. That's right. It should never have happened. But it did. In chapter 7, the sin is uncovered. And it is discovered that Achan is the perpetrator, the culprit. He is removed by death and his entire family, who is most likely in on the whole caper. Thus sin was dealt with in Israel. and Forgiveness was received. And now it's back to Ai, Joshua chapter 8. Don't you like do-overs? That's what this is. It's a do-over. An AI do-over. I enjoy golfing, and if you enjoy golfing, you probably like mulligans. What's a mulligan? It's a do-over. I didn't like that shot. I want to try it again. I go out sometimes early in the morning, uh, as soon as the sun rises in the summer, and I'll practice golfing. 
I'm just playing by myself, and then sometimes I'll shoot a couple balls, and I'm very generous with myself in giving myself mulligans. Never, never trust my score if I come home and say, I shot so-and-so until you count up how many mulligans I freely gave to myself. We all like do-overs, and this is a do-over. Look at verse 1 of Joshua 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. That's exactly what happened to them. Their hearts were melting because of fear, and they were all disillusioned. But remember the early command? God said to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you. But he wasn't in this battle. So now it's time to be courageous once again. Take the whole army, not just a few. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai, for I've delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that now you may carry off the plunder and the livestock for yourselves. And that becomes the practice of every other battle in Canaan. So here's some strategy. This comes from God. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai, and he chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night. Sent the ambush out at night, and he had plans in the morning to attack the city. By the way, generals throughout history have studied the strategy of this chapter, Joshua chapter 8, and have found it to be very effective, the old divide and conquer. No general studies the strategy of Joshua chapter 6, fall of Jericho. <laughs> no one's going to pull that one off. Oh, but this one, this is a good one, and it came from God himself. By the way, an ambush. Joshua is going to lead the army up. Verse 4 talks about the ambush behind the city, which is actually uh, to the west. And let's look at a map just to give ourselves some bearings here. I think this is helpful. I like this map because the gray part is that Jordan Rift Valley, River Valley, very low. And then as you go outside to the foothills, they're green and lush. And then you get into the higher mountains, which are yellow and orange. If you continued to the west, which is left on the map, you would go to the plains again in Israel and then out to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Israel camped at Gilgal. That's the little red dot at the bottom. When they crossed the Jordan, this became headquarters, and it was only two miles away from Jericho. That's the other little dot at the bottom. Jericho is right up by the foothills. So they would march every day, as we talked about, the two miles, go around Jericho, and then go right back to the camp at Gilgal. After Jericho was defeated, they went against Ai. Now that's up in the mountains, some 1,700 feet above sea level. It's really hard to find the exact location, but uh, archaeologists think that they have a clue. So this is where Joshua and the army went up the mountain, and then when they were defeated by uh, the army of Ai, they came back down to that mountain to their camp in Gilgal. And that's where it was discovered that there was sin in camp. So now, this time, Joshua says ambush behind on the west side. 
and we'll come up on the east side. And they came up the hill. And, and then when the A army of Ai saw them, they went out after them. And the king says in verse 6, they're running away from us just as they did before. But this was all planned. It was a trick. By the way, is it okay for a Christian to be deceptive in wartime? Where did this strategy come from? God. <laughs> and so Joshua leads the army up knowing that when he, he lures the Ai army out, he'll just go fleeing. And so that's what he's doing. He's running down the hill. And all the men of Ai leave the city, verse 16 says. All the soldiers are gone. And then Joshua stops and holds up the javelin. I should have brought a javelin this morning just to hold it up. It's such a cool gesture, isn't it? He holds up the javelin, Joshua's javelin. He must have thought of Exodus 17, the time he was fighting the Amalekites, and Moses held up his hands, and God's blessing was there. This was the signal for the ambush to rise out of hiding and come into the city. All the soldiers are gone. They set the city on fire. And the men of Ai look back, and their city is burning. They see the smoke. And suddenly the men they were chasing have turned, and they're coming after them. And the ambush men came through the city, and they're coming down the hill. And the army of Ai is caught in between. The Bible tells us that all were killed. Verse 23, they took the king alive, thousands fell. In verse 27, the soldiers got the plunder. And in verse 28, they burned the city in its entirety. Verse 29 says, they took the king who had been kept alive until this point, and they executed him. Now, in that day, they, they didn't execute people by hanging them. They didn't execute people by a guillotine. They didn't execute criminals by putting poison in their veins. They stuck their body on a pole. You say that sounds rather gruesome. Execution always is. But at sunset, they took the body down and put it at the gate of the city and then heaped a bunch of stones on the burned city and on the dead king. And by the way, those stones are still there to this day. Of course, you've heard that phrase over and over. It doesn't mean 21st century. It means close after the event. You could still go see the place. Back in 1838, an English scholar by the name of Edward Robinson identified the modern city of Kerbeth el Makatir as the Old Testament Ai. It was in 1995, this picture shows, I think this is Brian Wood or part of his team, who has conducted excavations at this site, the Kerbeth El Makatir, and they have found a small fortress, approximately th three acres in its, uh, its outline. It's 15th century, the very time that Joshua's conquest took place. It meets all the biblical requirements of Joshua's Ai. The gate of the fortress is on the north side, just as it says in verse 11. And there is an abundance of ash, burned pottery, stones, and even scorched bedrock that give evidence that the city was destroyed by fire. 
Now, you and I do not need archaeology to prove the Bible. The Bible's true, no matter what archaeology says. But archaeology always supports. Good, true archaeology supports the Scripture. And this may be the very evidence to show the historicity of this story to the doubting heart. Isn't that a great victory? Isn't that amazing? Yes, but at what a price. Lost ground is hard to regain. How much better it would have been to obey the first time and not to take the devoted thing and cause lives to be lost and Israel humiliated. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a great story of the main character on his way to the celestial city and he drops his scroll but continues on not knowing it is gone comes to a hill realizes his loss goes back and finds his scroll and when he finds it he rejoices and then he breaks down and laments and says something like this the ground I should have covered in one trip has taken me three lost time great price but they were able to defeat Ai. So that's the first half of the chapter. The route of God's enemy. That's verse 1 through verse 29. But I want to really focus on the second half of the chapter, which is the renewal of God's people, starting in verse 30. For we read in verse 30 that Joshua built on Mount Ebal, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stone, on which no iron tool had been used. In other words, not defiled by man. So this next map gives us the perspective of going from Ai all the way up some 30 miles to the Valley of Shechem. The Valley of Shechem is between two mountains, Mount Gerizim on the south and Mount Ebal on the north. That is an amazing picture. In this wonderful location, the Valley of Shechem is dear to the Israelites, not that they've been there before, but this is where God gave the promise to Abraham, I'll give you the land 500 years before. And now Moses commands, when you get into the land, go back to the place where the promise came. And I want you to refocus yourself. In the valley between these two mountains. After the horrendous consequences of disobeying God's word, this is the place now to resecure their commitment to the holy word of God. The next picture just gives you a, another sight from a slightly different angle of the Valley of Shechem, which we can't visit today. It's, uh, it's in a place where it's not easy to take a group. I suppose individuals could get there, but it's not a tourist place. We always go around it. We're close to it but unfortunately never able to pass through it. But let me read to you from Deuteronomy 27. You can turn there if you want to, or just listen as we hear the command of Moses. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I give you today. When you've crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them 
with plaster. Write in them all the words of this law when you've crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God has given you, the land that is flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord the God, your God promised your forefathers. And when you've crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you. Coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Don't use any iron tool on them. Build the altar the Lord your God uh, wants you to build with field stones and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice offerings and eat them rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write a very, very clearly all the words of this law on these stones that you've set up. And so Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God. Follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. And on that day, Moses says, I want you to divide the 12 tribes. Half of you go up Mount Gerizim and half go out Mount Ebal. And as you go up the mountain... I want you to read these curses and these blessings. And so in verse 15, there's a beginning of the curses. And, and as they read the curses and the blessings, the people on either side of the mountain would shout out, Amen! From that wonderful picture we saw a moment ago, you'll notice that there is a very natural amphitheater the acoustics are phenomenal. You can stand on one mountain and talk to someone on the other mountain without hardly raising your voice. Disbelievers have gone time and time again to prove that it is true. And from this location, they would read the blessings and they would read the curses. And the people would shout amen. I can just imagine Joshua's voice ringing so clearly in the valley and the thunderous echo of amen in antiphonal fashion back from one mountain to the other. In this picture, which is probably facing east, you've got Mount Gerizim on the right-hand side or the south and Mount Ebal on the north. Just remember, Ebal is evil. That's where the cursings were read and Mount Gerizim is on the south, and that is good. That's where the blessings were read. But the point was simply this, that this is the word of God. And our connection to it has serious, serious consequences. And so you'll notice that they had the offerings. The offerings were there. The burnt offerings for forgiveness of sin, the fellowship offerings for restoring fellowship. This was the first time in the new land that the offerings had been offered. And it was a mark that God was with his people. You've got the writing, the inscripturated word of God on the plaster that was put on the stones. By the way, Moses' tablets were in the ark, which is in the valley of Shechem between the two mountains. The presence of God was there. And the actual commandments were there. But they wrote them again. It's interesting, you've got this phrase, the book of the law of Moses. 
which implies that it has as much authority, the writing of the book of Moses has as much authority as the mediator Moses himself, if he were there. And you and I have the Bible, the Word of God, written, inscripturated, so that we might know the commands of God. It is the voice of God, and although we can't see God literally or hear His voice, this book has the same authority as if we could hear Him speak. For this is God speaking to us. Be leery of anyone who says that they are speaking God's word if it goes against this book. The stones were overlaid with this plaster and they would write it. But it was, it was not just the writing of it. Notice that when they gathered together... Verse 33, there were foreigners as well. Both the foreigners and the native-born were there. Verse 35 adds, the foreigners there with the men, the women, the children. The whole assembly gathered. There is this inclusiveness among the people of God. And it was always to be that way. Israel sinned when they became a nation only unto themselves. The command back in Genesis 12 is you are to be a blessing to the nations. Take my goodness and favor to the nations. And that's exactly what the church is to do today. Who were these foreigners? Well, Exodus 12 says some of the people from Egypt joined the Israelites and followed them to the promised land. I mean, wouldn't you? I would like to think I would have done that, seeing the plagues and seeing the power of Yahweh over all the gods of Egypt. I hope I would have said, I'm going with you guys. And some did. In the wilderness, they picked up a few. But we know in Jericho, they picked up Rahab and her family. And they were there. We are to have from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, every ethnicity, people from all over. That's why we send mission groups to South Asia, to Mexico, and all, so many other places. And one day, every tongue and tribe and people and nation will give praise to God. And here they are. Verse 34, there's not just writing, there's also reading. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law of Deuteronomy, not only in 27, but flowing out into the other chapters. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly. And in this natural amphitheater, the word was heard clearly. Now, I want you to note that the goal was always blessing. God created us to bless us, that we would prosper. God does love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. That's the way he created you. But we blew it because we sinned. And now the effects of sin have passed on throughout the entire human race, but God's goal is still blessing. You might read the Old Testament and get the mistaken idea that God just loves killing people and destroying people. Nothing could be further from the truth. But if we leave him, if we reject him, if we ignore his words, 
there are consequences called curses. It's not a formula. It's not magic. It's simply the results of disobeying the Creator who knows how to bless you. The word blessing comes from the Hebrew word barak, which means a favorable treatment. And that's what God designs. Think about it. They're here to receive the blessing. They've dealt with the sin, but now they need to refocus. Our success is dependent upon God's blessing. That's the only way we can be successful. And God's blessing is dependent upon our obedience to the word of God. Which means that obedience to the word needs to become the central focus of our life. It's not a book separated from its author. It's a book that gives to us the author. The triune God. And it's our only means of real fellowship with him. There's something mysterious. I don't mean to ignore that. There's a way that God speaks from heart to heart. But it's through this word. And that's the point of the passage. You see, this is all about placing the law of God back into the center of our lives. The chief enemy for the people of God you know what the chief challenge is, the chief enemy? It's not the nations in Canaan. For us today, it's not the world. It's disobedience. So when Christians love the world and live for the world instead of loving the Word and the God who wrote it. So this event, this renewal of the covenant people of God is all about placing the law of God in the center of our life. How do you do that? Read it. Read it daily. How much should I read? I don't care. Read it until you're nourished. I'm in favor of a Bible plan uh, that will... Have you read through the scriptures in a year? What I don't like about it is people are quick to check off a couple chapters without thinking about what they've read. Warren Worsby used to always say, read for the message, not for the mileage. Oh, I read through the Bible last year. Good. What'd you learn? I don't know. <laughs> there is some blessing in just reading the word, but oh, much more when we think about it. And that's the second thing. Read it, and then think about it. Meditation, you can use that word, or study. And then the third thing is to apply it. It's just that simple. Do it. Read it, think about it, and do it. Don't just be hearers of the word, James says. Be doers of the word. So the Word of God is foundational, it's crucial, it needs to be preeminent in our life. The center, everything revolves around it. Is that true of you and your relationship to your Bible? It's interesting that at this point in time, God's covenant people become the people of the book. They become people of the book. I heard a preacher with a Scottish background preaching on Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'll never forget, as he said, and they opened up the book. 
I love the way the Scottish say the book. Sounds a lot better than book. But it's the same thing. You and I need to become people of the book. And that's my passion for South. Whatever else we do. Someone says, what's South about? Here's the answer. We're trying to be people of the book. We want to follow God and love Christ with all of our heart, which is impossible without being people of the book. That's why we teach it. And by God's grace, may that never change. Because I want South to be people. I want us to be people of the book. In 1980, a structure was found on Mount Ebal by archaeologists. It has tantalizing parallels to the biblical description of this very altar that Joshua built on Ebal, except they, they date it 200 years after Joshua, roughly 200 years after Joshua. But that's not a big problem, because as we learn when we go to Israel in the city of Megiddo, that there is an altar in that old, old city that has at least 20-some-plus civilizations on that one altar. Because sacred space is often not discarded, but reused. You go to Israel and you see the temples turned into crusader churches back into temples. So it's very possible that the, the altar that they're finding is maybe more recent than the conquest of Joshua, but perhaps built on it and Again, very similar. The construction is of unworked stone. It's a rectangle, about 29 feet long and 23 feet wide. And it's filled with layers of ash, animal bones, and pottery sherds. But they've also discovered fragments of lime wash plaster <laughs> in the very vicinity that was put on the stones for writing. It's interesting to me that archaeology does not prove our Bibles, but it supports it. And we need to be encouraged that this book is true. And it brings blessing, but to discard it brings the curse. I heard a phrase just a couple weeks ago that I'd never heard before, and the phrase was the normalization of deviance. You heard of that? Apparently, it was coined by sociologist Diane Vaughn, who was helping to review the Challenger space shuttle disaster back in the 80s. Of course, everyone pointed to the flaw in the O-rings, and that appears to be true. But Diane went behind that, and she said it was the repeated choice by officials to keep using the dangerous O-ring by creating a new standard. In other words, they kept working. So now the high standard is lowered, deviated to another standard, which appears to be fine until all the flaws line up and we have the disaster. Mike Mullane, a former astronaut, was a keynote speaker at a conference, a conference on construction industry in 2014. And he described the same principle, the normalization of deviance. 
He said, it is a phenomenon by which individuals, groups, or organizations come to accept a lower standard of performance until the lower standard becomes the norm. This phenomenon usually occurs when these groups or organizations are under pressure to produce. Churches need to grow. Let's put churches in that organization. Churches need to grow. So let's do what it takes to grow. Now, I'm not against growing. But if we lower the standards to get growth, it's the normalization of the deviant. And now what is accepted by so many churches is so far from the scripture. It is shocking. He went on to say, faced with a situation in which relaxing the standards or procedures gets the job done, people under pressure, individuals to produce. Well, it's tough to produce as a Christian, right? <laughs> I mean, you're just not cutting it. And so you want to produce, even if it's an artificial result. And you begin to tell people you're doing better than you are. And now the new norm is a lower standard than the biblical one. The new norm is less robust and ultimately disaster comes. Our society and our churches have adopted the normalization of deviance so that the deviant looks normal when the Bible says curse. We need to take the scripture and believe it and think about it, read it and do it. And we fail every day, but that's where we confess our sin, right? We come to the Lord in his presence and we acknowledge that we're sinners. We pray and find fresh forgiveness. And then our prayer is, Lord, teach me your word and by your spirit, help me to obey. Or we'll be like Edmund who sins and affects all of Narnia. Or Achan who sins and people die in Israel. Or the shuttle challenger that kept flying with flawed O-rings until people died. When will we get it? The answer is, in Joshua 8, become people of the book. We are in the valley between two mountains. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you will do in my life really what all of us need, and that is a heart that is broken for our sin and quick to confess, to fly to Christ and find forgiveness, and to joyously go forward, reading the word that gives us life, that brings us blessing, that results in your favor, when by the Spirit of God, the Word of God is in our hearts and makes us more like the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please turn your hymnals to hymn number 372, Living for Jesus, a life that is true. Hymn number 372, let's stand as we close. Sing together. 
living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. Oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee. For Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master, my heart shall be thy throne, my life I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee An Irishman gave me this poem. Actually, I have two written in the back of my Bibles, and I'm not sure which one Bill Keys gave to me. <laughs> in the stillness of the morning, may your voice alone be heard. In the stillness of the morning, as we wait upon your word. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. Lord, Take us from here today with a renewed commitment to read, think, and do your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 